Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This to me is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. And today, today I'm announcing that the United States will be sending 31 Abram tanks to Ukraine, the equivalent of one Ukrainian battalion. Secretary Austin has recommended this step because it will enhance the Ukraine's capacity to defend its territory and achieve its strategic objectives. So that was Joe Biden yesterday at the White House describing that he is going to send these tanks to Ukraine and uh, apparently has no thought to America's strategic objectives, uh, but only cares about what's going on in Ukraine. And so I want to get straight to my first guest to comment on this and whether or not uh, the Democrats are provoking World War III, what exactly is going on, with? because these tanks take a while to, to deliver. Uh, but Jack Posobiec is a very good friend of mine. He's the senior editor of humanevents.com. He has uh, a great, great podcast every day that is just a quick snapshot of the news at Human Events that is powered by our friends at Turning Point USA and was also a, a veteran Navy intel officer. So the perfect uh, commentator on this subject. So Jack, good morning. And what do you make of uh, what's going on with uh, Biden and this relationship to Ukraine? Hey, good morning, John. Thanks for so much for having me on this morning. You know, it's interesting that um, so the these tanks go over and it's not just U.S. tanks. There's also a uh, an entire sort of coalition of NATO tanks that are going to be going over German arms from from Poland and a few other areas that are coming in different armor pieces that are that are heading over. But I think people need to understand that the numbers game, the fundamental numbers game, is still not going to be changed here just because a couple of dozen tanks are being sent over. That doesn't fundamentally change the situation. Russia still has uh, extreme amounts of reserves that they can send over. And and also, by the way, I think that uh, Westerners who, who haven't spent much time in the region or don't know anybody in the region probably aren't as cognizant of the optics of sending German tanks to areas that fought on the Eastern Front of World War II not that long ago, within living memory, with people who are alive that lived through the abject horrors of what Germany put that part of the world through for all those years on the Eastern Front, some of the greatest warfare that we've seen in human history. And and many of the people that, that lived through that brutality are still alive, the meat grinder. And so uh, that's why it doesn't surprise me, by the way, that President Trump actually is out on truth this morning saying, uh, first come the nukes, then co- or first come the tanks, then come the nukes. Get this crazy war ended now, not so easy to do. He's pointing out that we're engaging in a dangerous escalatory game, which, by the way, the same set of facts as in World War II do not exist today. This is a nuclear nation. Escalation with a nuclear nation always eventually ends up with a nuclear strike. Start, maybe it starts with a tactical nuclear strike, then it goes to higher, then it goes to secondary strike, and then you have nuclear war. I don't know what the carbon footprint, Jenna, is of nuclear war, but it's probably not good. 
<laughs> Probably not going to uh, be condoned by the World Economic Forum unless it uh, suits their purposes and they can you know, go ahead and, and disregard that. But I'm talking with my friend uh, Jack Posobiec, who is the senior editor of humanevents.com and um, an all-around great commentator. If you don't listen to his show, I, I highly, highly recommend it. And uh, so, so, Jack, I think everyone understands that President Trump was mindful of not starting wars. He was the only sitting president in recent history that wasn't engaged in starting a new war. And his take on this um, seems to be apt. But but let's also look at how uh, Biden is intentionally escalating this. And he's also doing this really without specific authorization from Congress. Um, not I, I have not heard that they voted on uh, sending these Abrams tanks. And so he's just doing this unilaterally. What is the strategic objective that he's supporting in Ukraine? Well, it's very interesting because it seems like the strategic objective that he's supporting is making sure that his paid clients uh, get their their resources to market because it's very interesting to me that if you look at what happened last year or really what happened throughout 2021 and then going into the start of this all of our arms sales are down across the middle east because we've essentially ended the global war on terror the military even stopped giving out uh the award for the global war on terror if you join the military that's something that's been out for almost 20 years and we're not selling tanks to Iraq anymore. We're not sending tanks into Afghanistan anymore. We're not the ANA Afghan National Army is, is doesn't exist anymore. By the way, they collapsed within minutes after we pulled out in the Taliban won. We left all those forces there in Afghanistan, all that equipment. And yet suddenly, right after the defense industrial complex can't send tanks into the global war on terror, we immediately find a reason to have to send tanks into Eurasia. It's sort of like uh, there's an old book that somebody wrote where they said, We're, we've always been at war with Eurasia. Don't ask any questions about it. Because what the, the Biden administration has been saying, a number of generals are saying, and they're even offering this deal throughout South America and Central America, they're saying, if you send your tanks to Ukraine, that we'll backfill you with American tanks. This is a sales pitch. So a lot of these countries, because they're saying, go ahead. By the way, the Southcom general came out and said this, Biden Southcom general, and even included Cuba and Venezuela as part of that deal. You send your old tanks, your Russian tanks, your Soviet tanks to Ukraine, donate them. Why not? Who cares? And we'll sell you brand new American armor. Wow. I mean, th- this sounds like uh, it's it's some hand-me-downs to Ukraine and uh, and a really a dirty deal here. Um, there has also been some conjecture as well that this relationship between Biden and Ukraine, of course, um, you know, we can talk about Hunter's laptop. We can talk about um, all of the, the interesting and possibly criminal things of the Biden crime family. Um, but one of the things that I've, I find interesting as well, um, Jack Posobiec, is the conversation surrounding what the Biden family and the Democrats specifically may owe Ukraine in uh, payment for the first impeachment of Donald Trump. And if you look at the relationship with Zelensky, of course, was on that phone call was um, the one of the uh, fixed central characters of that entire saga. What's your take on that? And do you think that there's any merit to that type of exchange? Well, look, remember, Jenna, uh, Vladimir Zelensky the oligarchs that run Burisma, these guys have all the receipts on Hunter Biden. Keep in mind that 
all of the documents that we've seen on this hard drive, and I have a copy of the hard drive, I've had one since day one, all of the documents we've seen, the videos, et cetera, that's only been what Hunter Biden saved for himself. Imagine what the Ukrainians have on Hunter Biden when he was running around Ukraine. Imagine, by the way, what Russian intelligence has on Hunter Biden, because obviously they know everything that Hunter Biden's going to be up to as well. They've got dossiers upon dossiers on this guy. And so when they want the Biden administration to do something, or really we should look at it as the Biden family to do something, they can put the squeeze on him easily. But of course, we're also seeing the administrative state put the squeeze on the Biden family at the exact same time right now with this classified document scandal. So I really do think you have to look at these in concert because the Biden family was able to get fabulously wealthy through money that they received from corruption in Ukraine. These are facts, okay? These are simply facts. And that doesn't mean that we can co-sign an invasion into Ukraine, the killing, et cetera, because of, unfortunately, and I was in Ukraine last summer, we went all the way down to Odessa, Mikolaev. There are people that are caught in the middle of this, good people who don't deserve this kind of warfare. But that's why you have to always sue for peace rather than constantly looking to ratchet up the escalation. And Jenna, by the way, these tanks that we're sending over, there's going to be American crews behind these. And of course, they're already saying, well, it's just going to be contractors. It's just going to be non-uniformed. Yeah, all right, great. It's going to be American defense contractors that are going to be maintaining them. It's also going to be American contractors that are going over. And what does that mean next? Are they going to be crewing them? Are you going to this is the same exact type of mission creep that we saw in Vietnam, that we saw in Afghanistan, that we've seen time and time again. And unfortunately, if they continue this, you are going to see a similar outcome that we saw in Afghanistan. I'm talking with Jack Posobiec, who is the senior editor of HumanEvents.com, has the Human Events podcast powered by our friends at Turning Point USA. And Jack, I want to get your quick take on a couple of other uh, top trending headlines this morning. So uh, President Trump has been reinstated on Facebook and Instagram. How does that change the game? Do you expect him to come back to Twitter as well? Well, I think he should. I think really when it comes to a, a campaign situation that you've got, you know, millions of people on Truth Social, but those are the people who, you know, they're, they're basically already Trump supporters for the main part. And there's probably some haters on there as well. But I think that for, for a nationwide campaign with the punch that his, his short tweets, by the way, his 140 character tweets, and I have a long uh, thesis on why his shorter tweets are actually better. Uh, I think that I don't think there's anyone who's better at writing the 140 character tweet as an art form and a political form than Donald Trump. Remember, the man was elected president of the United States with only 35,000 tweets. I checked. And so I think that using those platforms, that would give him the ability to go across not just putting it to his followers, but he gets it across to the media, it gets it across to sort of the, the average American that's out there. And then, of course, the media starts covering what he says, and boom, now you've got your free earned media campaign. Yeah, and I, I can't wait to see what his first tweet would be. Is it going to be a mean tweet? Is it going to be something snarky or maybe just I a think meme? I think tweet about Alec Baldwin. <laughs> I think he's got a tweet about Alec Baldwin as his first tweet back. It would that would be, be so perfect. That would be amazing, actually. Just, but stand behind Alec Baldwin, not not in front. Um, and then 
Also, Project Veritas had a new drop last night against Pfizer, and a Pfizer director uh, of R&D for the mRNA uh, scientific planning admits that they're exploring mutating viruses in a lab to tailor a vaccine to sell to the public. So um, this was a phenomenal story. If if you haven't seen this, uh, go to Project Veritas on any social media. You can see this about 10-minute video. Um, Jack, in just the last about two minutes I have with you, uh, what's your take on Pfizer and this revelation from Project Veritas? Well, thanks again, Jennifer, for the opportunity. Look, uh, Project Veritas, is, they don't just set the bar. They are the bar. Um, this piece of journalism, I think it really exposes just bare what we've already known that was going on behind the scenes with EcoHealth Alliance. Peter Doshak, and clearly the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This is why, if you go back to those arguments between Fauci and Rand Paul, and Fauci kept saying, it's not gain-of-function, it's not gain-of-function, this guy's providing the missing link because they've papered over the entire discussion by calling it directed evolution rather than gain-of-function. Well, guess what? This is why Fauci had to lie about the Wuhan Institute and what the CCP was cooking up in there because he knew that there were American companies doing the exact same thing in contravention of American law. This is why I'm so glad that we do have a conservative majority in the House. I want everyone, and and we know that Massey and Rand Paul, even in the Senate side, is going to be working very closely with this investigation. This has given them a roadmap to haul everyone in, and I want to see subpoenas. I want to see subpoenas flying. Preserve your documents. Oh, 100%. And it's always shocking to me that these people are willing to talk. And I think, um, you know, maybe some of them haven't even heard of Project Veritas until they become the subject of the video. And then, of course, they're never careful willing. Careful who you meet on the Internet, Jenna. That's all I got to say. Careful who you meet on the Internet. And be careful. Yeah. And uh, uh, <laughs> loose lips sink ships, as we used to say in the Navy. Right, exactly. Well, um, Jack Posobiec, thanks so much. And he will be joining me for uh, a continuation of this conversation on my podcast today, thejennaellishow.com. So that drops at 4 p.m. Eastern uh, daily. And so you can uh, hear from Jack on more of this uh, later. And Jack, where can people find you beyond uh, humanevents.com? And of course, promo code POSO. Uh-huh, yes, the best night's sleep in the whole wide world. Uh, but, but of course, um, yeah, Twitter, Getter, Telegram, uh, love Telegram, actually, um, True Social. We are all over the place on the Internet. And, of course, Human Events Daily, uh, the podcast and the, and the show at uh, 10 p.m. on Real Records Voice. Awesome. Well, you are doing such great work. So appreciate it. So much to talk about right here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. We will be right back to talk more about election integrity in a brand new book that you are definitely not going to want to miss. This explains a lot of what happened. Thorough research. We'll be right back with more on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Let's see, if something costs less, but people are happier with it, that sounds like something to look into, and that's MediShare. Maybe you've heard switching to MediShare to pay for healthcare can save the typical family 500 bucks a month, and that's huge, but it's also true that people are way more satisfied after making the switch, too. The customer satisfaction rate for MediShare is double that of the typical health insurance plan, double MediShare works. It's been around for more than a quarter century, and members have shared more than $3 billion of each other's bills. 
People love having telehealth and a huge nationwide PPO network. So yeah, you can save a ton and like it better. Imagine being happy with how you're taking care of your health care. So if you're self-employed or part of the gig economy, or you just want to plan you're happy with, you can call right now and get a price within two minutes. A very, very smart use of two minutes. Here's the number you need. 833-44-BIBLE. That's 833-44-BIBLE. 833-44-BIBLE. In this season of giving, you can be the answer to their prayer today. Hey, it's Michael Woolworth with Bible League International, and since Labor Day, we've been working toward a goal of putting God's Word into the hands and hearts of 16,000 Bibleist believers around the world. Here's a few that are praying for a Bible. Ahmed is a former Muslim beaten by extremists when he came to faith in Christ. He's praying for a Bible. Miriam is a widowed mother of three in Mozambique, Africa. Very sadly, her husband was killed by the Boko Haram regime, but she's praying for a Bible. Carla was a follower of Pagan practices in Venezuela. He's praying for a Bible now as a Christ follower. And then Washi and her husband are livestock farmers in China. They want to raise their children to know and love Jesus. They're praying for a Bible. Listen, to date, you've put 10,000 Bibles into the hands of Bibleist believers. We'd love to see another 6,000 by the end of the year. So please, at $5 a Bible, would you make your most generous gift by calling 800 Yes Word? 800 Yes Word. 800 Yes Word or give at sendbiblesnow.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starn. Stand by for news and commentary next. Liberty University's K-12 Online Academy is the best of a homeschool, private school, and Bible-based education all rolled into one. With LUOA, you can take charge of your child's learning environment and create a structured yet flexible schedule that works for your family. Our qualified teachers are easily accessible for guidance and support along the way. And with new classes starting every Monday, it's never too late to make the switch to LUOA. To learn more, text LUOA to 88741. That's LUOA to 88741. Memphis, Tennessee is one of the most dangerous cities in America. The crime rate rivals that of New York City. And yet the most pressing issue facing the council is the name of Audubon Park. City Council member Patrice Robinson has introduced two ordinances to rename the park in honor of a civil rights activist. The park is currently named after John James Audubon, the naturalist who died before the Civil War. He owned slaves. He's also dead. Memphis has something called a renaming commission, and over the years they've renamed anything remotely connected to the Civil War, even dug up the body of a dead Confederate general because he was buried in a city park. Honestly, the city should just save time and effort by renaming any building, street, or park named after a dead white guy. And for that matter, they should also consider renaming Memphis. Anyone who's read the Old Testament knows about Egypt's troubling history with slavery. I'm Todd Starnes. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And as many of you have called in and asked questions about election integrity, uh, where are we headed? What are we doing? And uh, can we have confidence in the sanctity of our vote and accessing the franchise? This has been an ongoing issue uh, well before the 2020 presidential election, but it came to the fore, of course, in the aftermath of everything that we saw, um, of course, that I was a part of as well on behalf of uh, President Trump 
and the Trump campaign. And another uh, significant player in the 2020 aftermath who is also now an attorney for Donald Trump's reelection campaign in 2024 is attorney Christina Bob, who has a brand new book out this week called Stealing Your Vote, the inside story of the 2020 election and what it means for 2024. So, Christina, thanks so much for joining me today. And, you know, you have been a journalist uh, for One America's News Network. You have done a ton of research on this topic. And uh, this is now a compilation of, um, of, of some really great work. So um, what can people expect from this book? Yeah, thanks, Jen. I'm so excited to be on with you because you were there. You know, we were doing it together. You're the first person I'm talking to that uh, actually knows, you know, what we experienced with Rudy's team. And so uh, I actually start the book on election night and go through kind of my own evolution of like my beliefs and, and thoughts of what happened and through the uh, investigation that I did, went over Rudy Giuliani and stuff, all of the efforts that we had, which you were so uh, intimately involved in, such a big, crucial part of. Um, you know, I had to go through all of that. And then in the aftermath, after January 6th or after January 20th, I should say, I, I continued my investigative efforts more so as a reporter at that point. But I spent months and months on the ground in Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, you know, all of, all of the states that expressed problems or are the most egregious problems, I should say. And I interviewed at least uh, at least 100 people on what they experienced, what they saw, whether they were poll workers, whether they're state and, uh, elected officials. And so I just kind of take the reader on my journey with everything that I was able to uncover. And more importantly, it's very it's a narrative. It's a story of like all of the different people that I was talking to. And I'm talking with uh, Christina Bob, who is the author of the brand new book, Stealing Your Vote, the inside story of the 2020 election and what it means for 2024. So, um, so, the left, of course, has had this narrative that um, this is baseless, a baseless claim. There is no evidence. And uh, they continue to move those goalposts, of course, right? Because first it was, yeah. there's no evidence, then there's uh, not enough evidence, and then there's not, um, you know, significant amount. And they the try to characterize this. Yeah. 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 And, and so what did you discover as you've been talking to people who were there on the ground uh, in election days as poll watchers, poll workers, and so forth? Yeah, there's a ton of evidence. There's evidence in every state. And quite honestly, as you know this, there was evidence on election night. I mean, the idea that uh, that they're going to stop the count, you might not you might say, oh, well, that's not enough to convince me that there was fraud. OK, but it's evidence. It's evidence that it's different from what we've done in every election in the past. You know, so they're trying to redefine evidence as a smoking gun that it's the only piece you need and it proves everything. The vast majority, again, as you know, of the vast majority of legal cases aren't that way. You get a whole bunch of evidence. You paint the picture, you know, put the pieces together and you say, what do, what picture do you think this makes? And, and that's what I do with this book. I give you, you pieces. I give you a whole bunch of pieces of things that happened all over the place. I put them together. And I'll even admit there's probably some holes. There are some questions that still linger for me. But I have enough pieces there that you can look at it and you can tell what the picture is. You know, they cheated. That's, that's the result. They cheated. And you'll, you know, you can see how they do it. So um, this idea that there's no evidence of fraud has never been true, not even on election night. 
And I think the mainstream media knows that, uh, quite frankly, and they're just wanting, um, as you said, which is an excellent point, that they're trying to redefine what evidence means. They're re- trying to redefine what proof means in a legal context. Yep. And because there isn't just one person who has come forward that says, hey, here I am. This is how exactly how I did it. Like, you know, a bank robber going through his his plans and uh, and you have something right. that literally is a smoking gun. They're not willing to see the circumstantial evidence, um, all of the evidence that it does come in in pieces and also how um, how many violations there were in terms of laws that were a pretext under COVID and then also uh, that, that didn't go through the legislature that were just executive orders and changes of the law, but then also election yep. administration that didn't follow the law. And so it's always been so frustrating um, to me as, as we've talked about, Christina, that, uh, that election officials are so disregarded the law, but if you sue ahead of time, then judges say, well, there's no harm yet, so you can't sue yet. And then after the fact, they say, well, you should have sued sooner. And so even though a harm may have been incurred, it's not substantial enough. And even if it was, that's now prejudicial against the alleged uh, winner, who of course is the Democrat. And by the way, you don't even have standing as the political candidate anyway. So what are we left with? Yeah, we're left with an impotent judiciary. I mean, they're all washing their hands of this. They don't want to get involved. They want the status quo. They just want to be, you know, judges, respected judges in the community, and they don't want to be asked to decide anything hard. I mean, that's the unfortunate reality of the judiciary. Not everywhere. We've had some good rulings out of Wisconsin. We've had some good rulings out of Georgia. You know, the Court of Appeals recently ruled they could have access to the ballot. So there are there are good rulings out there. It's just that the media highlights all the bad ones, you know. So uh, you're right. I think where I would say that we're at with the problem with the judiciary is we have to have enough people involved that we don't need the judiciary, that we have to we have to resolve this. Of course, peacefully, I'm not talking. It's certainly not talking about violence or anything crazy like liberals do. But um, we have to have enough people involved in the process that we don't have to litigate any questions. What I mean by that, like I interviewed witnesses in Detroit who were poll workers. They were Republican or poll challengers. And they told me they were outnumbered 101. There were 100 Democrat poll challengers for every Republican that was there in Detroit. Wow. At certain times. You know, it probably wasn't that way for the entire time. But there there were moments where that was true. That's a problem. That's a very real problem. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, you made a, you made the point last week on a, um, an election in- integrity panel that we were both on at a conference that, um, you know, so many people who ask, uh, well, I'm so frustrated about this and what can uh, what can we do to help? Or or sometimes they even ask, you know, both you and I and other other people in in Washington and everywhere that's dealing with election integrity. What are you doing? You're not fighting hard enough. But you made a really excellent point that um, it's incumbent upon everyone in your state to get involved, to become mm-hmm. poll watchers, to become um, actually a part of the election administration so that we aren't just handing this over to the Democrats who have all of uh, their people that then go in and can determine yep. how to administer elections. So how do people really get involved and what do you think are the, are the most important roles? Yeah, that's exactly right. We hand it over to them and say, I hope you don't cheat this time. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, they're gonna. So people can get involved in a number of ways. And my, my book gives examples of some really great things that people in, you know, Wisconsin and Arizona and Pennsylvania, just these grassroots efforts. You can 
Get involved in your local GOP if you have an active local GOP. If you don't have an active local GOP, maybe you want to start one, you know, and uh, learn how to become a poll challenger, observer, whatever role you're willing to play in the election. If you don't want to work with the formal party, there's a lot of great grassroots area, uh, uh, grassroots efforts in many areas of the country. If you don't have one, start one. What I would suggest people do is what makes you angry? You know, are you angry that the voter roll is twice the size of what it's supposed to be? It has twice as many voters on it as actually live in your community? Because that makes me angry. You know, figure out, get a grassroots group together and figure out how you guys can get force some change on the voter roll. Or, you know, are you angry about the mail-in ballot chain of custody? How we, we believe that they're stuffing ballots at certain points. Oh, it's so bad. They shouldn't be allowed to do that. We'll get a group together and, and guard your chain of custody. You know, you have to figure out what moves you in your community and go do that. Mm, that's that's really great advice. And I'm talking with Christina Bob, who is an attorney and the uh, author of the brand new book, Stealing Your Vote, the inside story of the 2020 election and what it means for 2024. And um, you know, I, I've talked with a number of um, legislators on this program, and, and Claudia Tenney, who is a great uh, member of Congress, also talks about model legislation that can be carried through the states. And yep. uh, there are so many different uh, reforms that we have already seen, and I think we've gotten a lot of hope that um, we are making yep. strides. And this type of progress on the legislative side does not come quickly or rapidly. No one should expect an overnight change. But uh, what you you're suggesting, Christina, by actually being involved on the ground is an overnight change in the sense that you are right there on the ground. You don't have to wait for the legislature. You don't have to wait and hope that a judge actually has um, the ability to do the right thing or um, isn't just a, a spineless judge that is more politically attenuated. You can actually make a difference and you can make a difference for this next election. One of the most frustrating things to me is for people who have been uh, angry about the 2020 election, they have been frustrated to just say, well, then I'm out. I'm not going to vote. My vote right. doesn't count anymore. So I'm going to sit back and complain without actually doing something about this. And um, and I think that that's the worst possible response that we can have. So yep. looking ahead at 2024, um, what is your expectation for uh, some of these states? And do we have hope that we might have some election integrity reform in uh, in and before 2024? I do have hope for it. I, you know, I, you know how it goes. I wouldn't be doing this job if I didn't think it, it were possible. I recognize that it's challenging, and but I, I do think we will have it. And to me, the key is everybody getting involved. If if people sit home and say, "Oh, my vote doesn't count. I'm not going to do it," well, then it, it's not going to work. You know, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that. Oh, so don't worry. Somehow we'll save everything all by ourselves. Like that's not going to happen. And I've heard the complaint that you highlighted of people saying, oh, my vote doesn't count. I'm just going to sit it out. It's all corrupt. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Okay. I, I hear that complaint. I will challenge everybody who feels that way. I will challenge you. I, I will drop the issue. I will not talk to you about it again. And I will not criticize you for bowing out after you participate in one election cycle. Before you give up, you have to actually show up. 
show up, get involved, become a poll worker, work on a community group with uh, people who scrub your voter rolls, work on a community group of people who want to protect the chain of custody. I mean, join a prayer group that focuses specifically on this. Like, you don't have to be doing, like, these hard campaign activities. Just do something in your community that matters. And if you get involved and you meet all of your neighbors and you see all of these people who are working night and day, many of them are using their own money, they're donating their time, they're donating their money, they're donating their resources to try to solve this problem. If you get involved and you see how passionate these patriots are and you still don't believe, okay, fine, bow out. But until you've done that, I think it's, it's a coward and la- cowardly and lazy move on the part of people that just say, oh, I don't want to vote. Yeah, and, and my dad always says, uh, you know, if you don't participate and uh, actually have efforts for change, then you have lost your right to complain about the outcome. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> exactly it, you know, it right. reminds me of, of the story we all read when we were little about, um, you know, the hen who was making the bread and she asked everybody to participate and they didn't want to do the hard work of actually helping her make the bread, but they really wanted to participate in the, the fruits of her labor. And so, you know, we don't want to have a society that has only the professionals that are participating in our government. And even though we have this concept as conservatives, that we the people are the owners of our government, are we really Mm -hmm. taking that to heart? Or are we uh, saying, well, I, I want everyone to give me the pathway to then participate instead of truly being uh, stewards of this great nation and saying a citizen-led government requires all citizens to be engaged. And the people who participate, they are the ones that are going to score the most points. They are going to be the ones that uh, end up changing the rules. They're going to be the ones who end up uh, running the show. And so we have to... Yep. Um, as much as we have time, and I know that so many people who listen to this program, it's not your full-time job to be concerned about election integrity, but it is part of your job and responsibility to be an active and participation um, citizen in our great nation so that we can all ensure that we have the access to our vote and we have elections administered fairly. So, um, Christina, where can people find uh, this book and also follow you and uh, your new role that you have now just moved over to the campaign for President Trump for 2024? I think so. It's available on Amazon. That's probably the easiest place to get it. And you can follow me on social media, Christina Bob or Christina underscore Bob on Twitter and Instagram. And I am working on a website, ChristinaBob.com. If it's not up this week, it'll be up next week. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your work on this. And um, and I, I really appreciate all of the efforts that you have made and participated in um, throughout not just 2020, but um, even previously to that on uh, investigative journalism and really highlighting what's going on. I think that this book is so important because it's a collection, as you've said, of, of the stories of people that were on the ground um, and the people that the mainstream media aren't willing to interview, that they want to just say <laughs> doesn't exist and, uh, and say, yep. you know, we want to make sure that we get these stories out there. So um, I know that this has been uh, a couple of years of really hard work for you. So thank you for being involved in the process. And I really appreciate it this morning. Thank you so much. And I appreciate all your efforts as well. We were in it together. <laughs> yeah, you. well, and you know, we're still in it. We are still in it. And uh, we'll, in it. 
will continue to, per to participate. So Christina, Bob, I really appreciate that. And we will be back with more on Jenna Ellis in the morning right here on American Family Radio Network. And please do get involved. And as Christina was saying, you know, get this book. Um, maybe that will inspire you to one of these uh, types of positions. Get to know how your local legislature and your local rules work and find out a way to get engaged in the process. Or as Christina aptly mentioned, just pray. That is, that is one of the most fundamentally important things that I think we ignore uh, and look more for work, but we have to, as Christians, always, always pray for our great nation. So we'll be right back with more on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Weekday mornings at 8 central, Pastor Jeff Shreve offers real truth for today. I'm the pastor of First Baptist Church in Texarkana, Texas, and the founder of From His Heart Ministries. The world around us is rapidly changing, but God and His truth will never change. I may be the host of the show, but I want God's Word and His truth to be the star of the show. Join Pastor Jeff Shreve each weekday morning at 8 central for real truth for today on American Family Radio. Hello, I'm Don Hawkins, here to tell you about Encouragement Live, 55 minutes of industrial strength radio encouragement featuring resourceful guests, plus practical biblical insights to help you face life's challenges. We'll be taking your phone calls, so plan to join us for Encouragement Live, Saturdays at 7.05 p.m. Central, 8.05 p.m. Eastern, here on American Family Radio. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. My name is Abraham Hamilton III and this is the Hamilton Minute. The 128th Psalm explains that it is the individual who's been transformed by the power of God who then builds the transformed family. Transformed families build transformed churches. Transformed churches build transformed communities. And transformed communities impact the broader society. The way forward in America is repentance and living locally. Focus intensely on your families, your local church, and your local community. What goes on in your house is far more important than what happens in the White House. Great Commission execution must begin in Jerusalem. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. In this new world, on this new day, we rejoice that Roe v. Wade has been overturned. Preborn has been preparing for this moment for the past 16 years by positioning their clinics in the top six abortion states where 50% of abortions occur. Sadly, five of these six states will continue to abort babies at an even greater level. And since the abortion pill accounts for over 50% of abortions, babies are even more at risk. Preborn pregnancy clinics are completely dependent on you as they offer life-saving ultrasounds and the life-saving gospel to moms and babies in crisis. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life will be without her. To learn how you can be a part of rescuing babies' lives and sharing the heart of Jesus, go to preborn.com or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. 
Well, January is the Sanctity of Human Life Month, and this is a time that we set aside as Christians to highlight uh, the need that we have to protect and preserve human life from conception all the way until natural death. And we want to make sure that our law reflects the moral truth that is given by God, our creator. But frankly, we should be concerned about the sanctity of human life uh, all throughout the year. Uh, and, you know, pro-life Republicans are making strident uh, headway. And especially with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, uh, this has brought the abortion debate to the fore. But a recent USA Today article essentially blames pro-lifers and Republicans for threatening the fate of in vitro fertilization or IVF in response to the Roe versus Wade reversal. So is there any truth to this or is this just another scare tactic and talking point from the left? And what's the broader conversation about IVF and the biblical worldview? Well, my next guests um, who are in the AFR studio today are Kendra White and Anne Cockrell, who are the hosts of Hannah's Heart, which is a half hour program to help couples that are struggling with infertility and miscarriage and sorting through the biblical response to this. So Kendra and Anne, thank you so much for joining me today. And um, tell me more about Hannah's Heart and why this program is so important, especially in today's society. Yeah. Hey, Jenna, thanks for having us on today. I'm Anne, and I started working here a little over three years ago, and it um, had been on my heart to start some sort of ministry that dealt with infertility and miscarriage because my husband and I were currently walking through infertility at the time. And so when I got here and I proposed the idea to some people and to Walker and Wesley, we kind of just went for it. And uh, yeah, it was just on our hearts. And then once I talked to Kendra about it, she and her husband, Eric, were struggling with infertility. One and, in eight couples. Yeah. Struggled. I was about to say one in eight. Uh, we have some other couples here who have also struggled with infertility. And so you, you're going to pass by someone at the grocery store each time you go that is currently walking through infertility or, and then one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage. So um, it's a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ out there struggling with this topic today. Yeah. And, you know, and, and Kendra, this isn't a topic that a lot of people tend to want to talk about um, only because it is so sensitive and it is so um, it's so deeply personal. Mm -hmm. But as as you mentioned, there are one in eight couples and there are so many people that do struggle with this. And when uh, we look at. Uh, how the Christian response should be to these. How can we even navigate those types of conversations? And how how uh, di how did it take you and your husband um, to walking through this to be open about it and to seek um, potentially some biblical solutions? Yeah. So when I married my husband, um, he uh, is a wheelchair user. He's a paraplegic. So I knew when I said I do that uh, there might be some um, fertility complications. Um, so I had to begin kind of processing in my heart, like when I say yes to him, how God builds our family wasn't unknown. Um, that was a lot of dying to flesh that I had to do yeah. personally because I'm I'm like many women, that little girl that played with dolls and has dreamed of being a mommy for a very long time. Um, but of course, God is enough. And um, through the Lord used infertility in my life in a huge way to draw me closer to him. Um, so the, the, the choice of then being open and talking about our story with other couples 
Um, honestly, my, my husband and I, we, we walked through a miscarriage. And while you're going through that excruciating pain, you're asking the question, you know, why did this happen? And how, um, you know, I don't think the Lord causes these things, but sometimes he allows them and he will still use them for glory. Um, and that's a, a, an important thing to, to note that these things happen because of sin in the world, but um, yet God can somehow bring good things out of it. And so seeking to encourage other couples from me hitting those moments of um, just hitting the, the rock bottom and knowing that Christ was enough. Um, specifically, the, the topic of IVF um, has become kind of a soapbox issue that I want to help couples process because I've been pro-life my entire life. Um, as, as soon, I mean, I was a kid that literally went to abortion clinics with signs that said life when I was like six and seven with my family. So, you know, if I have held that, um, you know, life begins at conception my entire life, I can't all of a sudden change the way I think or talk about that just because my husband and I want a baby. And so as we started looking into, cause we were told that IVF was the only option for us. As I started looking into the typical protocol of IVF, there were a lot of life concerns that seemed to not be consistent with a biblical worldview from the way um, many um, people do IVF. So um, as as we started on that journey, I did a ton of research. And basically, to give you kind of my conclusion um, of, of what we found is that there are, I believe, ways to, to do fertility treatments that are God-honoring, that are life-affirming, that do not result in extra frozen embryos being destroyed. Um, but you have to be aware. You have to ask questions. You have yeah. to sometimes find clinics that are willing to do things though, um, that are consistent with your views. And sometimes those aren't very close. Nope. Nearby. We had to travel six hours for our <laughs> for our treatments. Yeah. And you know, Kendra, I think that's such an important point that we can't refashion and tailor our understanding of the truth of Christ based on our own life experience. And we have to start fundamentally with what is the truth. And then whatever our life circumstances, truth does address that. But we can't just um, have what I've, what I've kind of coined as, as moral gerrymandering, basically mm-hmm. drawing and redrawing the boundaries of moral truth and the Bible and reinterpreting it based on our preferred outcome. I mean, that's what the Supreme Court does all the time with, um, unfortunately, with the Constitution, rather than here's what it says and it says what it means. And then we apply that to a given situation. Um, they often say, what is the preferred outcome we want, and then try to manipulate the text accordingly. And that's activism. And so we can't as Christians do that. And so I applaud you and affirm you in that, that that is the correct approach. So what principles should guide a Christian couple's decision to pursue uh, fertility treatments? And what kinds of questions should they ask? So I've learned a lot from Kendra with this because my husband and I were told the same thing a few years ago, like IVF would be our only option to conceive a baby. And Lord filled us, I guess. Uh, He answered our prayers in a different way. But a few months later, I was all of a sudden pregnant and that pregnancy lasted. And uh, that sweet baby's about to be a year old on Monday. But what we had to do, we just had to get back on our knees. That's where we needed to be the whole time. As you're struggling with infertility, I just encourage you to stay there. Just stay on your knees praying, pray with your spouse. And I, I love the illustration where people say, just keep your hands wide open because that is 
how we should be as hearing what the Lord wants us to do with our stories. Cause our stories do look so different, but yeah, praying what yeah. Uh, your infertility journey needs to look like where you and your husband or you and your wife, um, see yourselves going through this in a way that does honor the Lord. You know, does that mean fertility treatments? Does that mean IVF? Does that mean adoption? Does that mean foster care? Um, there's so many different ways to grow your family these days, and I feel like we all just need to be willing to hear um, how the Lord wants to do that. Yeah, a couple of principles I would I would add to that is if you are not sure about a treatment, um, then then don't go for it. You know, wait until you have all of the information, because I think a lot of times Christians lean on the side of ignorance on this issue because they don't want to know the answer, because then they have to reconcile with um, what God's word says on this, with this deep seated need and desire to have a biological child. Um, And so, you know, it's it's not enough to just say, oh, we don't really understand IVF, but we prayed about it. We're going to do it. You need to be asking those questions to your fertility doctors of what are you doing and you know how how could this harm this embryo what happens if we have leftover embryos after so first of all um, you have to be informed about any procedures that you do secondly you need to be on the same page as your spouse okay. it's not okay for one of you to feel like oh i'm called to this and the other not mm-hmm. god's going to bring you into unity on this that's important um you know stewardship is another issue that comes up how much are we going to spend on this um, because if, if you allow this to be an obsession, you can go into serious debt mm-hmm. over the desire to have a biological child. Um, now all of those things I think are, um, can be individually, um, accustomed to each family. So what you, what I would encourage a couple to do is to sit down before you begin mm-hmm. this journey, or if you've already started it, just stop before you continue and make a list, pray with the Lord and, and what are the parameters and guidelines um, that you're going to say, okay, we're not going to go past this. And also your emotional, like you, you have limited resources of time, limited resources of money, and also limited resources of your emotional strength because um, fertility treatments are exhausting. And if yes. you see one partner that's just in a really dark place, sometimes you have to be willing to say, we're going to stop. Yeah. And those are some really uh, great foundational principles. And especially um, what you mentioned with um the the decision to pray about it first, but also uh, truly consulting scripture and the revealed truth of God. Um, it's it's I think one of the the pitfalls of a lot of Christians that that tend to say, well, I prayed about it, and of course God affirms what I wanted to do anyway. Right, yeah. and and so you know we have to make sure that when we're praying, we're not just using that. Oh, I prayed about it as an excuse right. or a or a cover to say well, I didn't really do the full research and I'm ignoring um, some of these things that the Holy Spirit may be uh, speaking to me and those hesitations um, that you have about things. But but I also wanted to, to talk about too this this difference between um, a biological child versus the, the blessing of adoption. So um, in my family, my younger brother um, was adopted after um, my parents actually went through uh, some infertility as well. Um, so my older brother and I are, are biological children of my parents, um, but they always wanted to have more kids. And as I saw um, my parents navigate through this and I saw um, how they were in unity in those decisions and, um, you know, as a 
I guess probably between, you know, 10 and 18 is when I can really remember, you know, those types of conversations and walking through that. I saw them actively seek the Lord and everything that they were doing. And even though some of those fertility treatments ultimately weren't successful for them, the blessing of adoption um, was God's will for our family's life. And my younger brother, I know that um, God gave him to my family and to my parents Mm -hmm. in the exact same way as a biological child. He just came into the world a little differently. Right. And so the blessing of adoption, um, I really, especially after experiencing it in my own family, um, what would you say to to couples in that same way who maybe are are broken and discouraged that they aren't having a biological child, but the blessing of adoption is still a way that God absolutely can give you the greatest blessing um, of having a child in your life? Oh, wow. Um, so we actually just adopted our sweet little boy in December of 2022. Um, we fostered him first for two, a little over two years, and then um, we adopted him, yeah, just a month ago. Um, Congratulations. Thank exciting. you. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, I feel like my heart has always been open to adoption. My husband and I talked about it before we ever got married. We talked about fostering, all the things. Um But the thought of not experiencing a biological child scared me to death for some reason. I just wanted that experience to get to be pregnant and to do all those kind of things. But the Lord brought that sweet baby boy. His name is Mark. I can say that now. Um, He brought him into my life through foster care and completely changed my life. I definitely think that my whole infertility journey would look completely different if it wasn't for him. He used that sweet baby to change my life. I think our family's lives um, and my husband's life for sure and just opened us up to see, no, I I can love someone else's baby just like my own. It doesn't matter. He, He will never look like us. His skin does not look like us, but he is made perfect in the lord's image and he he is a cockerel and he's proud of it and we're so proud of him too and so i definitely encourage you it is such a hard thing to finally accept and say god i i get it and i'm okay that i will never have a biological baby i did have to finally say that and for the first time that was february of 2021 that i surrendered and i was like god i give it to you i do not have to have a biological baby and it's still to this day it kind of surprises me that i was able to say that but i was and i finally came to the point that i genuinely meant it and uh, that was when i surrendered our fertility journey fully to god and we honestly stopped everything um that like kendra mentioned i feel like it looks different for each family and so I'm definitely not saying if you're if you're in the process of infertility treatments and all that, I'm not saying you need to stop that today and adopt. And you've said uh, this on the show, too, that adoption is not a Band-Aid for your feelings is, of infertility. Right. You I have had to, to get to the point of saying... I fully surrender this, Lord. Yeah, well, and, and the common thread here is that we need to trust God more sooner. And yes. so regardless yes. of what your particular journey looks like, what um, struggles you may have, and whether, you know, whether you're listening to this conversation and you're thinking, well, you know, uh, I'm not going through infertility, you'll have other challenges yes. in your life. Um, I've had other challenges in my life, but the common thread here is that we all have to trust the Lord and say we are giving over every facet. Yeah of our life uh, to so you. Right. So um, so where can people listen to Hannah's Heart, uh, which is this half hour program uh, to help couples 
uh, with all of these conversations. Well, we air every Saturday at 5 p.m. Central, and then you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and then on the streaming platform now. We're brand new there. So great. Well, uh, welcome. And thank I'm you. So, so excited to have you. And thank you for, um, for stopping by today. And, you know, thank you so much also for being open with your personal stories. I think it's so important that Christians don't just talk around the issues that we actually will testify right. to the truth yeah. of how God changes our lives. So uh, we are out of time, but uh, thanks so much for joining. And I will see you tomorrow right here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.